And I'd like to read from verse 7 to verse 10. Zechariah 4, verse 7 through 10. As you can see, we're not doing too well in terms of covering the whole book of Zechariah, as we only have one session left after this one, and we still have another 10 chapters to cover. Uh, So I'm going to have to speak really quickly this morning. I hope you can keep up with me. (laughs) Verse 7, it says this, Who art thou, O great mountain, before Zerubbabel, Thou shalt become a plain, and he shall bring forth the headstone thereof with shoutings, crying, Grace, grace unto it. Moreover, the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this house. His hands shall also finish it, and thou shalt know that the Lord of hosts hath sent me unto you. For who hath despised the day of small things? For they shall rejoice and shall see the plummet in the hand of Zerubbabel, with those seven, they are the eyes of the Lord which run to and fro through the whole earth. And again, we believe God will bless their public reading of his precious word to us. <clears throat> There's a couple of loose ends that I want to tie up this morning before uh, looking at that we- passage we've just read. And uh, one of the things that I omitted to mention is that uh, we talked about Zechariah being a young man. But one of the things that is outstanding about him is a young man who is full of questions. He has these eight night visions, but what you find is that that he's always wanting to know details about the visions. So I want to just kind of run through and just show you the questions. For instance, in chapter 1, verse 9, Then said I, O my Lord, what are these? Uh, You see it again uh, in chapter 1, verse 19. I said to the angel that talked with me, what be these? Verse 21, then said I, what come these to do? Chapter 2, verse 2, then said I, whither goest thou? And uh, chapter 4, verse uh, 4, so I answered and spake to the angel that talked with me, saying, what are these, my Lord? Verse 11, then answered I and said unto him, what are these two olive trees? Verse 12, I answered again and said to him, what be these two olive branches? Chapter 5, verse 6, I said, what is it? Uh, Chapter 5, verse 10, then said I to the angel that talked with me, whither do these bear the ephah? Uh, Chapter 6, verse 4, then I answered and said to the angel that talked with me, what are these, my Lord? And we could go on, but I want you just to get the point here that here's a young man, And yet he's a young man who is eager to understand the mind and the revelation of God. And you know what? There's nothing thrills a preacher than meeting a young man that is eager to know more about his God and his Bible. And, and, you know, there's, there's nothing more discouraging than people that are just apathetic about the Word of God, and they just kind of hear things, and they sit there, and they just kind of look almost gormless, like, you know, just kind of as if they don't really care. But this man cared. He wanted to know God's will. He wanted to know God's words, and, and he's asking questions. By the way, the only time he didn't ask a question is chapter 3, and the reason is in chapter 3, the vision was so obvious There's no question to ask. It's just clear. And of course, it's irritating when people ask you questions that are so obvious. You're thinking, just read the passage, right? But on the other hand, there's a lot of things in the Bible that that, there are good questions, right? And we, we shouldn't be afraid of questions. And so I just wanted to point that out. This eager young man is a man with a questioning mind. 
And then something else in chapter 3 I wanted to uh, mention. And, and I want to just read verse 9 and 10. It says, Behold, the stone which I have laid before Joshua, upon one stone will be seven eyes. Behold, I will engrave the graving thereof, saith the Lord of hosts, and I will remove the iniquity of that land in one day. In that day, saith the Lord of hosts, shall you call every man his neighbor under the vine and under the fig tree. And the reason I wanted to read that is that what we've been doing really is we've been taking the prophecy of Zechariah and we've been making application of some of the principles to us today as believers. But we don't want to forget the interpretation of the passage. There's one interpretation. There are many applications. And the interpretation of the passage is that the cleansing of Joshua the high priest, remember he was a representative of the people, and what God was showing is what he did for him, clothing him, removing the filthy garments, clothing him with garments of salvation. In a coming day, God is going to do that for the whole nation of Israel. Right? I will cleanse the iniquity of that land in one day. And there is a day coming, Paul talks about it in Romans chapter 11, when all Israel will be saved. That's going to be an amazing day, isn't it? By the way, I want to encourage you and challenge you to pray for the people of Israel. Uh, Every Saturday on my prayer list is Israel and the people of Israel. And what I pray specifically, because it's the Jewish Sabbath, and yet what saddens me is that so many of the Jewish people have yet to enter into God's rest in Messiah. And so I pray that that day, God will bring some Jewish person into rest in Christ. And let's pray for the nation of Israel. We owe a lot to them. The Bible that we have in our hands came to us through the nation of Israel. The the Savior we have came to us through the nation of Israel. We're debtors greatly to them. And we should indeed express our gratitude and appreciation and and certainly remember them as a nation uh, in our prayers. And so certainly there's coming a day. And of course, when will that day be? Let's just look ahead to Zechariah 12 and... um, and we'll just kind of mention this because it's a beautiful passage. And uh, we'll, we'll break in in verse 8 of Zechariah 12. It says, In that day shall the Lord defend the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And he that is feeble among them at that day shall be as David. Can you imagine that? That, that in a coming day when all the nations will attack Israel, led by Antichrist and, and his forces, it says that in that day that the most feeble Jew will be like David. (laughs) Well, David was a mighty warrior, wasn't he? Can you imagine the most feeble of them being like David? And then he goes on and he says, not only that, he says uh, that that, um, the house of David shall be as God. In other words, like God is fighting against these nations. Of course, God is. And it says... uh, as the angel of the Lord before them. And it shall come to pass in that day that I will... It's good to when you read through Zechariah to pay attention to the I wills. There's a lot of things God is going to do directly. He says, I will seek to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. 
And I will pour upon the house of David and upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplications. And so what God is going to do is he's going to work in an amazing way in that day so that uh, he pours out the spirit of grace. The Holy Spirit will be working in a very unique way in that particular day. And what's going to happen is that it's going to cause Israel to cry out to God for deliverance, surrounded by enemies. And even though they're fighting like David and collectively fighting like God, the, the massive armies that are against them, the will be so overwhelming that it will seem utterly hopeless. And in their desperation, they will cry out for God to bring deliverance. And so they'll begin to really pray uh, in, in, a, in, a, in a way of earnestness uh, as a result of the Spirit moving. And then it says, They shall look upon me whom they have pierced. And what's going to happen is that deliverance will come to the nation. But it'll come from a source they did not expect. It'll be Jesus coming, riding on a white horse out of heaven with the armies of heaven behind him. And, and, and they'll, they'll be delivered. And, and we know from Revelation 19 that, that just one word will fell Antichrist and all his forces from the Lord Jesus. And, and their enemies will be defeated. And, and so Israel will be saved. Talk about the seventh cavalry arriving in the nick of time. This will be that occasion. But wouldn't you think that the response to such a deliverance would be rejoicing? dancing in the streets, right? You're going to be wiped off the face of the earth. The, the final solution is about to happen. And all of a sudden, you're delivered. And it, you'd think it'd be like VE Day in the Second World War, the Victory in Europe Day, when they had ticker tape parades and they danced in the streets, or, or VJ Day after uh, the surrender of Japan. You'd think it would be something like that. But look at their response. It says... I'll pour on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication. They shall look upon him or me whom they've pierced, and they shall mourn for him as one mourns for his only son. Shall be in bitterness for him as one that is in bitterness for his firstborn. Instead of dancing in the streets, they're going to be stricken as if they have just lost their firstborn son. I, I can understand that. I, I've been at the bedside of women that have lost their firstborn child, and the grief is intense. And it says that's what they're going to be like. And in fact, this mourning will be so deep and so real. It, it says that uh, in that day, there'll be a great mourning in Jerusalem, as the mourning of Haddon Rimmon in the valley of Megadon. That's a reference to the day when godly King Josiah was killed. And the people mourn then. And he says, it'll be like that. And he says, not only that, they, the, the land shall mourn. Every family apart, the family of the house of David. So it'll be the royal family will mourn. And their wives apart, the family of the house of Nathan. Nathan was the prophet. The prophetic family will all mourn. Those that are connected to the prophets of the past. Verse 13, the family of the house of Levi. The priestly family. In other words, everybody in the nation will be mourning. They'll be absolutely gutted. Why? Because the last person they expected to deliver them was Jesus Christ. See, throughout their history, for the most part, 
they have despised the Lord Jesus. They have said, we will not have this man to reign over us. They have have tried to stifle anybody ever believing in him. Don't want Isaiah 53 read in the synagogues. Don't want to face the music about Jesus of Nazareth. They call him the apostate, that despised one. And all of a sudden, the one that they have hated so much will be the one that will deliver them. And so there'll be great mourning. But I want you to notice chapter 13, verse 1. In that day, there shall be a fountain opened to the house of David and to the inhabitants of Jerusalem for sin and for uncleanness. You know what that fountain is? We sing about it quite often, don't we? There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins, and sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilt and stains. And the work that Jesus Christ did on Calvary will be made good to the house of David and to the family of of the the Jewish people on that day. And like Paul says in, in Romans 11, 26, it says, in that day, all Israel shall be saved. What a day that will be. And so we recognize that this cleansing of Joshua in chapter 3 is basically uh, telling us that what God did for this representative priest in a coming day, he will cleanse the iniquity of that land in one day. And a nation will be literally born again in one day. What a day that will be. And we long for that day. And again, we should be praying and burdened for that nation because they have much to go through, much to go through before that day comes. Well, I want to look at uh, chapter 4 and verses 7 through 10. Uh, We were looking yesterday about the vision in chapter 4 of this lampstand that is oil-dependent, and it's all about testimony. And will will Israel be a testimony for God again? And of course, we we learned that it's not by might or by power, but by my Spirit, saith the Lord. And so we we understood that. But then verse 7 says, Who art thou, O great mountain, before Zerubbabel thou shalt become a plain? And the idea is this, that that the, the building of the house, which will be the center of them being a light for God, the house of God is always central in the purposes of God, isn't it? It, it, it really, you know, even in, in the tabernacle in the Old Testament, where did they place the tabernacle? was right in the middle of the nation, wasn't it? They were all, their tribes were, were arranged around it. The house of God should always be central in our, our witness, our activities, in everything. So, so we're talking about building the house of God, but there's some mountains that are in the way. Big mountains. Now, it's interesting how he actually personifies the mountain. Who art thou? O great mountain. So this mountain actually is an individual. And we want to think about the opposition and the difficulty that they faced and the mountain that needed to be removed. It's kind of ironic, isn't it, that we're surrounded by mountains and we're talking about God removing mountains. So we've got a very good uh, kind of visual aid around us, haven't we? So let's just think about this for a moment. What was the opposition? Now, I told you, and a homework assignment was to read Ezra, chapters 3 through 6. Did you do your homework? 
Oh, I see some faces there that are saying they're not, you know, very good students. I'm glad that this is not one of my uh, Bible school classes, or else I'd be deducting some marks here. Look at Ezra, please. The book of Ezra and chapter 4. The background, really, to this chapter is Ezra chapters 3 through 6. And so Ezra chapter 4, verse 2, it says, Then they... This is basically the forerunners of the Samaritans. They came to Zerubbabel and to the chief of the fathers and said to them, Let us build with you, for we seek your God as you do, and we do sacrifice unto him since the days of Esarhaddon, king of Asher, which brought us up hither. And so, of course, uh, what the, uh, the, the king of Assyria had done as, as he uh, emptied the, the ten tribes out of the land, and then what he did is he brought in these foreign nations that had been subjected to the Assyrian uh, uh, kind of captivity, and they moved them into the land. And then, of course, it says that lions and, and various other wild animals were killing them. And so they said, oh, we need to learn the ways of the God of this land. And so some Jews were brought in to teach them about about the God of Israel. And so you had this group who were a kind of unholy mixture, right? And it's always a bad thing in the Bible, an unholy mixture. And it was an unholy mixture of people who, who were the people of God, who were now intermarrying and, and, and being involved with people who were not the people of God. And so they took on the worship of the God of Israel, but as well as their other gods. It wasn't a case of abandoning the other ones. It was just kind of adding another one to cover all the bases, And so, rightly, Zerubbabel and Joshua said, Sorry, we don't want your help. We don't want the help of people who are not God's people in doing God's work. That's true today, right? Uh, I used to go go to a church before I was saved, and they used to do bingo and all these other kind of things, and unsaved people would come and fund everything. But God's work needs to be done in God's way by God's people. And so they said, no, we don't want your help. So then, because they uh, basically refused their help, verse 4 and 5 says, Then the people of the land weakened the hands of the people of Judah and troubled them in building and hired counselors against them to frustrate their purpose all the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even till the reign of Darius, king of Persia. So what they said was, okay, if you won't let us build with you, you're not going to build at all. And so they tried every trick in the book to disrupt the work. And then we get the biggest obstacle, which is verse 6 and 7. It says, In the reign of Ahasuerus, in the beginning of his reign, wrote they unto him an accusation against the inhabitants of Judah and Jerusalem. And in that day of Artaxerxes wrote Bishlam, Mithridath, uh, Tabil, and the rest of their companions to Artaxerxes, king of Persia. And the writing of the letter was written in the Syrian tongue and interpreted in the Syrian tongue. Uh, tongue and basically they said these Jews are a bunch of rebels they've always rebelled against different authorities and all they're going to do is build the temple and they're going to kind of rebel against you and so it seemed to work it seemed to be successful because the work stopped look at chapter 4 verse 24 now it says then ceased the work of the house of God which is at Jerusalem So it ceased until the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. 
And so the whole project came to a standstill because of a letter from the king saying, stop the work. And so they've got this big mountain to overcome. But notice chapter 5 now and verse 1 and 2. Then the prophets Haggai, the prophet, and Zechariah, the son of Ido, prophesied to the Jews that were in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of the God of Israel, even to them. Then rose up Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Josadak, and began to build the house of God, which is at Jerusalem. And with them were the prophets of God helping them. So there's, there's the background to this. And so the result of the prophetic ministry of Haggai and Zechariah, the people began to build again, and it seems that somehow God removed the mountain. And so again, we, we want to bring this home to us. You know, and of course, by the way, when the Lord Jesus, and we'll look at it tomorrow, when he puts his feet on the, land of, uh, 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 the Mount of Olives, mountains literally will move at the second coming of the Lord Jesus. They will literally move out of the way. But the question is, can obstacles and difficulties be moved out of the way today? And of course, it's a good question, isn't it, to ask, because the Lord Jesus said that we have, if we have faith, how big? As size of a grain of mustard seed. We will say to this mountain, be moved. And guess what's going to happen? It'll move. Do we believe that? Now, it's kind of an interesting thing um, because there are a lot of obstacles we're facing in the church today. I think the biggest apathy is, uh, the biggest, I've just given it away, the biggest obstacle is apathy. I just find it so frustrating to me, the lack of enthusiasm among God's people for the things of God. And, and I see these same people who have no enthusiasm for the things of God get all hyped up about a football game. Blocks of cheese on their heads and, and you know, painting their, their skin blue. And, and, and some of these are Christians. And they're all hyped about this kicking a bag of wind around. Come on, guys. If you can't get excited about the Christ of Calvary, I wonder you're even saved. Listen, if you can't get enthusiastic about this, what's wrong with you? Have you not understood the, the, the amazing grace of God? And so uh, I think apathy is a big obstacle and it's a burden. And, and there are many obstacles today, but can they be removed? Um, we've been talking about uh, future speakers and there's a brother in Kansas City. His name is Dr. Steve Price. And I'm hoping he'll come here someday. You'll never regret having him. He's a tremendous blessing. Steve was in an assembly that had a history of trouble. The elders couldn't get on. In fact, they, they were so um, antagonistic towards each other, they all stepped down and they had a brother's meeting instead. And the brother's meeting was even worse than the elders' meeting. And so they invited Steve to come on board to the brothers' meeting, and he observed how quite often what would happen is they'd get together and for maybe two or three hours they'd talk and for ten minutes they'd pray. Usually they'd pray at the beginning because often they couldn't close in prayer at the end. So Steve said to them one day, can I make a suggestion? And he was a young brother at the time. And they said, okay, what? He says, well, why don't we pray for three hours and talk for 10 minutes and see what happens? So they did. 
Some of the people who were such a trouble to the church over the years either died or moved. All of a sudden, new young couples came in, and it became one of the most vibrant assemblies in the Midwest. They're praying now for 50 new assemblies in the Midwest. They've got a vision. And what changed it? People stopped trying to figure things out in their own intelligence, and they came to the one person in the universe that can solve the problems of our assembly. And, and it's a, such a simple thing, and yet why don't we do it? Well, don't you think that would be a great idea in our assembly? Just to get together and talk to the one person that can remove the obstacles. And so what I'm saying is, are there obstacles you're facing in the work of God? Can God remove mountains? Well, he says here, Who art thou, O great mountain, before Zerubbabel, thou shalt become a plain. And then notice this, He shall bring forth the headstone thereof with shoutings, crying grace, grace unto it. You see, Zerubbabel laid the foundation stone. When I was in India, the Bible school I was teaching at, they started an extension. And they said I was the first white guy they'd had in that area for 50 years. And so they asked me to lay the foundation stone. It was kind of really weird. I kind of felt really strange. I said, this is what the queen does. You know, uh, this is not my kind of responsibility. And then the, the, another day I went to a wedding and they were all taking pictures. They wanted, everybody wanted to be, have a picture taken with me. And I kept saying, I'm not the bride. I'm not the bride. You know, it, it was like this celebrity status. I felt really weird. But listen, Zerubbabel laid the foundation, and God says, you, you laid the foundation, you're going to lay the cornerstone, or the, the, the top stone. You, you're going to finish this project. When he laid the, the, the uh, thou shalt become a plain, he shall bring forth the headstone. When he puts the final piece on this building, the new temple, it says that the people will shout. You know what they're going to say? Grace, grace unto it. I think that's a beautiful thought, isn't it? Because you see, when the church is finished and the last soul is added, the last living stone to the body, and then when we're presented spotless before the throne, before God as that pure bride, you know what we're all going to say? Grace, grace unto it. You see, it's all of grace, isn't it? None of us deserve what we have in Christ. We deserve hell. But it's, it's God who is a God of matchless grace. And so when all this is done and Christ has built his church and it's finished and it's complete and it's a beautiful bride, then we're going to say grace, grace unto it. Then he says this, Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, The hands of Zerubbabel laid the foundation of this house. His hands shall also finish it. And thou shalt know that the Lord of hosts has sent you and then he says this, For who has despised the day of small things? You see, there were some old-timers there. It's funny how old-timers look at things, don't they? They, they? Everything is better in the old days. You, 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 they talk to you about, you know, I, I hear these guys in the Midwest, and they talk about going to a one-room schoolhouse, and they talk about how they'd go in bare feet, uphill both ways in the snow, and they talk about it being better. I'd rather go in the car, to be honest. I really would. You know what I'm saying? But it's always better back then, isn't it? And the problem is that we can live in the past and forget that God has us here now. I've struggled with that. I read about revivals in the past, and I think, oh, why wasn't I not born in the 1800s? 
where you could stand on the street corner and preach and there'd be a hundred people listening to you. But God has brought us to the kingdom for such a time as this. This is your hour. This is your time to serve the Lord. And so, as we we think about this, um, he, he says to him, who has despised the day of small things? And the old timers, they remembered the temple of Solomon. And by comparison, this temple was, well, it just was, it was one even comparable. It was inferior in every way. It was smaller. It wasn't as beautiful. It wasn't as magnificent. And so they were kind of crying. And everybody else who couldn't remember those days, they were shouting for joy. They'd been in Babylon for 70 years. All they'd seen was idolatry. And by comparison, this temple was wonderful. But God says, Who has despised the day of small things? And then he says this, a very interesting thing. He says, for they shall rejoice and, uh, uh, rejoice and shall see the plummet in the hand of Zerubbabel with those seven. They are the eyes of the Lord which run to and fro through the whole earth. And the idea is this, that some of the old timers might not have been impressed with this new house, but God was. The eyes of the Lord were impressed. To see the the plummet line in the hands of Zerubbabel and to see this building coming together, God was pleased. I often think that today, you see, we're living in the days of mega, aren't we? Go to McDonald's and you can get a mega size and mega churches. And, And here we are, our assembly on a Sunday morning, 35 people. And, and, and yet, we're in Springfield, Missouri, the headquarters of the Assembly of God. We've got the James River Assembly there. It's packed. I mean, it's thousands. They have the police out there directing traffic. And here we are, 35 people. It's a small thing. But you know what? To God, it's not a small thing. Because those 35 believers love the Lord Jesus. And when they come together, there's nothing to attract them except Christ. Nothing in our assembly to attract anybody but the Lord Jesus. That's all we've got. We don't have particularly charismatic gift. We don't particularly have, uh, you know, great musicians. We don't have a fancy building. There's just 35 of us, and we have a loaf and a cup. And yet, you know, God looks down in a world that constantly derides his son, and here are 35 people that every Lord's Day morning come together and they speak in reverent tones and they're in love with the Lord Jesus. And I want to tell you, the eyes of the Lord look down and they're impressed <laughs> with what's going on there. Don't despise the day of small things. Now, I'm not saying that we should be content with 35. The reason we have 35 is because we hived off and started another assembly. That's the reason we have 35. And I'm not content with small numbers in the sense that God wants all men to be saved. And I would love to see more people come to Christ and long for that. But on the other hand, a small group of believers that love the Lord Jesus is precious to the heart of God. And so we need to be careful that we don't feel intimidated by the crowds and by what's going on in other places. What we need to realize is that God finds something for his heart at this place. And so he says, do not despise the day of small things. 
Then verse 11, he talks about, Then I answered I and said to him, What are these two olive trees upon the right side of the lampstand and upon the left side thereof? And I answered and said to him, What be these two olive branches which through the two golden pipes empty the golden oil out of themselves? He answered and said, Knowest thou not what these be? I said, No, my Lord. Then said he, These are the two anointed ones that stand before the Lord of the whole earth. And when we look at Revelation 11, in a coming day, and in, 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 in many ways, a day of small things, where the church is removed, and at least initially, there's 144,000 Jewish evangelists, and there's two witnesses in the city of Jerusalem. And if you look at verse uh, 3, it says, I will give power to my two witnesses and they shall prophesy a thousand two hundred and threescore days clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive street trees and the two lampstands standing before the God of the earth. And so we're talking about, in a sense, a day where uh, it'll be very dark. We said yesterday there's going to be a great multitude saved at that time, but still, overall, it's a dark period. It's the day of the man of sin. It's the day of uh, the personification of evil, right? That's a dark day. And yet, in the midst of the darkness, there's going to be two lampstands, and they are going to be giving a bright testimony to the truth of Jesus Christ in a dark day. And you know, the darker the day, the brighter the light shines. Isn't that true? You know, it's amazing when you have a really dark night and you just put a little light, it really kind of stands out, doesn't it? And in a sense, we're living in dark days today and yet God wants us to shine as lights in a dark place. How? Well, the only way we can shine is lights in a dark place is if the Spirit of God has free reign in our lives and we let that light shine. So what we're saying as we look at this section, and I want to just kind of summarize because, again, those minutes that I'm allotted seem to be on steroids or something. They go awfully quick. <clears throat> but, but, um, but I think there's some great principles in this chapter that need to be brought out in chapter 4. One is this. The God who we serve provides power for his work to be done. Right? We saw that in 1 through 6. Not by might, not by spirit, but by, uh, not by might, but by my spirit, saith the Lord of hosts. Secondly, the God who we serve removes obstacles. Mountains are moved. And then thirdly, the God who we serve gives promises. He promised to Zerubbabel, You've laid the foundation, you'll also lay the headstone. You'll finish the work you started. And, and God's promise came true. I'm glad that the God who we serve gives promises. And keeps promises. Aren't you glad he keeps promises? What about this one? I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Is that a good promise? He's going to do it. No matter what it looks like right now, forget that. It doesn't matter. What matters is this, that God keeps his promises and the church will be built and it will be complete and it will be perfect. I'm glad this morning that I serve a God who provides the power for the work to be done through the Holy Spirit. 
I'm glad that I serve a God that can remove mountains, that can remove obstacles, that can enable us to make progress in the work of God despite opposition. In fact, often the greater the opposition, the greater the progress, if you read the book of Acts. And then I'm glad that we serve a God who gives promises and keeps promises. That's why there will be a millennial kingdom because God promised many, many years ago to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and to David, he made promises about a land. He made promises about a king. He made promises that will come true. And he made promises to us. He says that if we suffer with him, the day of his rejection, we shall also reign with him. I don't think we even get a a, a fraction of what the glorious future is for us as saints of God. But it's tremendous. And it's not based on us, it's based on his promises. And they're sure. And they're steadfast. Let's pray. Father, we're so grateful for the word of God. We're so grateful for this inquisitive young man, Zechariah. We pray for our young people that you would give them a greater hunger to know the will of God in the Word of God and to be willing to ask the questions. We pray for winsomeness for the older saints that they might know their Bibles well enough to be able to give intelligent answers. Father, we pray for the present mountains that we seem to be facing in the church. Apathy, indifference, coldness, preoccupation with other things. We pray, Father, that you would work even this week in our hearts and remove the obstacles so that we might serve thee fully in a way that is fitting for one so lovely as our Savior, the Lord Jesus. Father, we pray again for your people, Israel, today. Oh, Father, we pray that today, somewhere, some Jewish person might come to rest in Jesus the Messiah. Oh, Father, we pray you'd give us a greater burden for the nation of Israel. We are in debt to them. They have blessed us so much. And we pray, Father, for them in this day of difficulty, where it seems in this world they're friendless. Yet we're thankful, Father, that you've got a great plan for that nation. Right now they may be seen as the heel of the nations, but there's a day coming when they'll be the head of the nations. And we long for that, Father. We long for the day when all the promises concerning Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob find fulfillment in that kingdom age. Oh, Father, we thank Thee for these things. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, amen.